Hold on. Making it a dream guts the story. Shut up, Herb! I think it makes it more funny. Endings to be useful must be inconclusive. Good writing is clear. Talented writing is energetic. Good writing avoids errors. Talented writing makes things happen in the reader's mind vividly, forcefully. It's time for the rules of acquisition. Hello and welcome to the Rules of Acquisition, a podcast where we are going through every single episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the greatest show of the 90s, and I'll say it, I feel good about this episode. <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> my name is Wade Bowen, and with me, as always, is James Nolan. Would this podcast be better if I was a dream? <laughs> uh, and also Hugh Crawford. Hey, how you doing? Doing all right. We're talking about an episode. Who are you? Oh, said, I, I said my name. My name okay. is, is yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Hugh. Yeah. I just woke up. Um, I've had my own sensory vision. Sorry. <laughs> that I was a cast member of The Greatest Gen. And I just... <laughs> all right. So anyway, yes, today we're talking about... Uh, far Beyond the Stars. It's episode 13 of season 6. It originally aired February 11th, 1998. Here's the short IMDb description. Captain Sisko has a full sensory vision of himself as an underappreciated science fiction magazine writer in 1950s America. Director Avery Brooks. This is no secret. This is probably the best episode of Star Trek ever, right? I mean, for a syndicated show in the 90s. No, I'm just kidding. No, this show is pretty... Yeah, this is... All right. No, pound for pound. What's the best? What's the best? I think this is the best Star Trek episode. Yeah. What's the best? Like, it beats the best Voyager episode. It beats the best Enterprise well, episode. It definitely beats the best yeah. Discovery episode. So, I mean, really, it only, it's going to go up against the best Next Generation episode or the next uh, or, the, or like, original yeah. series episode. So, I mean, I can't really think of anything that's more moving or more... Powerful than this. I mean, what do you? What's in the? What's in the list? You're talking inner light, best of both worlds, city on the edge, city on the edge, city on the edge of forever. Um, I yeah. I mean, I I, I, I mean, what a muck. I mean, a muck time has kind of got a quirk. I mean, so you're. I mean, yeah. That's more campy. Yeah, this is better than those. So as far as we're concerned, anyway, I would say the kickers of elves consensus is. That this is the greatest episode of Star Trek, uh, single greatest. Yeah, Wade, are you are you comfortable with that? I, I was just about to say, is this the greatest Star Trek? Maybe is this the greatest Deep Space Nine episode? You're not even getting it out of the the preliminaries. Oh, okay, okay. No, okay. no, no. I was about to say maybe, maybe it is, maybe it is the greatest Star Trek show, and also not the greatest Deep Space Nine episode. If that makes any sense. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are I'm you saying ready, that there I'm are not, better? Are you saying that there are better episodes of Deep Space Nine? I'm thinking than saying this? that it doesn't conform to the the ideal of a Deep Space Nine yeah. episode. I'm saying I don't know. This is all just I'm I'm thinking this out loud. Hmm. So I'm not saying this is my opinion. Okay. I'm saying when we keep talking about what the great when people talk about what the greatest Deep Space Nine episode is, there's this episode that comes up, and then there's another one that we haven't gotten to yet. Pale Moonlight. But I might argue, you know, I'm not ready to argue this is worse than in the... But I, I'm a guy that gets weird ranking things in that way, too. Okay. Because they're, they're very different episodes, too. Mm-hmm. But, like, 
so, but if you're going to go like for what a basic Deep Space Nine in that it's dealing with the characters that we know interacting, like in their regular characters, not playing other characters, then, I mean, this is kind of a step sideways. This is a flash sideways episode. It's almost a very, it's a very brave. Before you call it brave, I do want to say that in the history of Star Trek, this is a, this is a template episode. Yeah. yeah. Where for one reason or another, the cast and crew are transported back in time Mm -hmm. to like 1950s or 1940s earth Yeah, Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. like for shenanigans, you Mm -hmm. know, but that's why this is so powerful is because it takes that familiar trope and anytime you take a trope or something that's been done and this this would be the third iteration uh, that this particular thing has been done where we take the whole cast and we find an excuse to put them back in time and to make it a powerful episode. Yeah. That's sort of a, yeah. that's a damn impressive trick. Okay. So I, I on this podcast where I'm at, you know, my personal journey is that I'm I'm finding myself changing in Deep Space Nine, staying the same, staying the same age. I keep getting older, and it's to keep staying the same age. So um, I, and so we get to these episodes, even like Waltz, which is in all the ways in my wheelhouse, but like it's just it's not you know like it's something about it's not ringing cherries with me or something like that. This is like an episode which I remember like being deeply affected by it, my first watch in two thousand five. And being maybe more mm-hmm. moved by it now. Yes. So. Yeah, I f- feel the same way too, but. You know, I'm trying to fight, you know, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to use the word boredom, but in this uh, sort of malaise that I found some of these routine episodes like Who Mourns for Mourn and, and, and other this, the other things we fight over is that where could the show go mm-hmm. and what could the show do? And one of the things that like I thought of while watching this is that not only, I mean, it's moving for social issues and it's powerful in that way. And we're going to talk about that. And that's, you can't take that away from it. Mm -hmm. But what if this was the first episode of season six or whatever? And it didn't end like, like it didn't end tidy. Like what if like, you're like the next season is flashing back between Benny, the writer and the right, the written, like the, the Benny Russell. And it would be interesting if you didn't know, if you didn't know, what was as a viewer if you weren't sure what was real yeah and so it then it becomes Mm -hmm. like a different kind of sci-fi and that's satisfying and thrilling into itself you know right i looked at it from that perspective that just like how jarring of a change it was and what an interesting to take the fertile soil of deep space nine has and do something truly different and interesting with it and tie it up with the hist and tying it in with the history of sci-fi writing and all of that stuff, which is super interesting. Like it was, you know, it was it was a love letter mm-hmm. to sci-fi. It's a love letter to, you know, I mean, it's it's a story about social justice. I mean, like like it's beautiful and yeah. and and it was thrilling. And I don't know, this is Deep Space Nine, and the, I mean, this is this is the Deep Space Nine we talk about when we talk about Deep Space Nine. I think. So. Yeah, 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 totally. I I also had like a very strong response perhaps stronger on this time watching it than I did when I watched it in 2005 or the last time I watched it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because if I've gotten more emotional as I've gotten older or if it was just the times we live in or... I think it's just a more woke... Yeah. You know, we're living Mm -hmm. in... I watched it like two weeks after Ferguson. Oh, did you? On my rewatch. And I wasn't ready for it. Like, I didn't know... (laughs) That's what I and I was just like, I was very upset because the these issues that it specifically addressed 
which was basically mm-hmm. ki- the killing of unarmed black men, um, right, right, was not just something that they felt like they need to like express in 1998, but it's also something that they felt like they needed to express, you know, because it happened in the 19, 19- like it's a cycle, you know. Right, it's right, a, right. It's a 1998 story that talks about the 1950s, so and it's happening in 2014, 2018. So it's this cycle that it's it's not a thing of the past. Like you you can't look at it as mm-hmm. like oh look at this horrible thing that how things used to be, which is sort of like a naive reading that you might take you might have taken it from it if you I growing up in a white suburb in 1998. If I saw this episode, I probably would have been like oh man that's horrible how that things were back then you know not uh, not aware that it would this is still the right, reality right. for so many mm-hmm. people i mean I've, I've heard people in the last couple of years say oh i i don't need to watch an episode that reminds that just to tell me that racism used to be real bad it's like wow you don't get this at all do you, <laughs> you know, if like, you take away from this episode that the the pot the point of the episode is that racism is bad you you don't you don't know how to watch shows like I don't know what to tell you because that's yeah, not what yeah, the story like, is about. Oh, yeah, I don't need to relive that the fifties were hard, horrible for black people. It's like, dude, it's not about the fifties being horrible for black people. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that, and that's I mean, and it's almost about like that. Every one of these characters, all of them in that room, are indicted. Everyone, you know, every every one and every character. Yeah. I mean, Penny, the, the you know, even the African American characters are are are. You can see how they respond to this this injustice and like how that that the mentality that that forces upon them that pulls everything away. It's more than just racism is bad. It's that racism is a mindset that's established in all levels. It, it, like it, it it contaminates everyone. Mm-hmm. Like it, right. that, and how it strips people of their humanity. Like it, how it strips them of their humanity. But yeah, like I mean, it strips humanity. like I mean Armin Shimmerman's character, who's clearly like a right. you know a leftist like a, symp- a sympathetic, a but he's empty to do anything. That you know right. that even the women you know like the like all of that stuff was everyone was sort of tied into that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it well, nails it. it I, yeah. I to to kind of dovetail into your point. One of the be- one of the secret weapons of this uh, episode is is ha- actually having Brock Peters in it. Yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. And it made me it made me wish that they found a way to shoehorn him into the station more often. I sort of wish Brock Peters was around more. I guess is my point because that's how he, that's how the episode starts, yeah. right? Where like. Brock Peter shows yeah, up yeah. and you're like, hey, you're here. This is your first time away from Earth and cool, right? Yeah, do, yeah, yeah. Do we want to jump in and kind of just break it down a little bit? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's a thing that you, we, you've mentioned in past episodes coming up. Like, oh, it's like they just totally forgot about the Dominion War. And like, in some ways, like this episode is just a perfect one off. But at the other ways, it does tie back in. It does fit into the arc of the series, too, because. It sets up a dilemma for Cisco in this episode as him working through it in some ways. Like the Cortez has just been destroyed with Quentin Swafford, which who was a friend of Cisco's. He introduced him to his wife, and 400 people have died. And it's like, oh shit, oh yeah, the war is still here. We thought, you know, and to an extent, especially in the late in the 90s, I don't know. There's something to be said for like, oh, we all feel safe and forgot that there's still like danger right around the corner, and that. It, 
the universe is not a safe place. And we've we've been lulled into thinking Deep Space Nine is safe and the war is not going on because we've had these shenanigans episodes for so long. But it's like, oh, yeah, there's a there's a fucking war on and your friend just died. Mm-hmm. Cisco's pretty shook about it. And it just happens that his dad is here for the first time ever. And it's like, sorry, son. Like, And he's like, sorry, dad, that I'm not more fun. He's like, no, man, I get it. Yeah. So Cisco is, has decided that maybe he, he needs to not. He's been fighting long enough and it's exhausting. Maybe he wants to quit. That's that's kind of what gets set up at the beginning. And I mean, I, yeah, it's a rocky transition, I think, a little bit. Really? To, to jumping back to the 1950s? Yeah, I don't think that. I, I wish there were more of a comparable feeling. I mean, I guess that because you're left with the idea of why did they I mean, from a plot standpoint, why did the prophets and I know that there's a sequel episode to this in the seventh season. So I'm trying to like talk around it. Why did the prophets because they say that it was the same as when he was receiving the image, the future images of Boy Pedro. So why did the prophets choose to talk to him at this moment? Because he's because he's about to quit. That's why. Cause I it, know, but that's, that's that's what I'm saying. I think that was you didn't that didn't sell to you. I think I feel like I know Benjamin Cisco. I don't feel like Benjamin Cisco would have quit at that moment. I feel like he was. I feel like he was saying things, but I don't think that it was. I don't think it was as truly as personal. I don't. know. I mean, it, because it ha- we haven't met Captain Swafford and everything. It's. I mean, it's. It got us where it needed to be, and that's fine. I'm not saying that. I'm just. Yeah. For me, it worked just fine, but. It's because of whatever the nature is. I mean, it's his kind of it's his garden of Gethsemane. He's think, he's doubting, and then he's got a vision of that. Yeah, or or it's even um, it's it's a no. It's not even it's a wonderful life, but it's like you know he's he's thinking about making this, a decision this episode. I agree. You're comparing it to it's a wonderful life in the garden of Gethsemane. And my point is, it's a line. So it is by like I'm not saying the idea is bad. I'm just saying that like it didn't. Well, I think it's a whole scene. You know, I didn't get to see that develop in him. Which I, I if there was ten more minutes of this episode, I oh, would yeah. want that to be donated to Benny Russell and not this. So I mean, yeah. I don't know. It sold just fine to me. It's mm. like one. It's an episode. He gets shook with this news. He doubts, and then kind of starts having these visions. Yeah, and it starts with uh, we see Renee Abrajanwal, not Odo. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. And I mean, pretty quickly you know it gets him in a situation where he's laying down and you know what's that what's this <laughs> like right, and, right. and freaking out kind of yeah. quickly so we get all the guest stars we get joe Cisco, his dad shows up and we haven't seen cassidy yates in a long time no it's because she, like, she, she was on the yeah. larry sanders show oh that's oh, right yeah, it had some sort of strange uh, tug of war right. with her stuff. but it did it did seem like Someone's like, wh- um, how many tete-a-tetes did Iris Stephen Bear have with Gary Shandling? Uh. <laughs> That's true. But it did seem like at some point Iris Stephen Bear probably went to Gary Shandling and said, we need her because she's, I mean, we only got three. <laughs> and Gary Shandling said, three what? And he goes, I need her. <laughs> <laughs> or this show won't have a right. won't have enough. Yeah. Just just a quick quick since you you guys brought it up about actors outside of their makeup. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to go over a quick like appreciation of of Armin Shimmerman oh my and God, his yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and how fantastic he is. And I think it's sort of a crime that larger like the Hollywood at large hasn't found a like a all the Danny DeVito roles you know what I mean like Danny DeVito didn't need that much work (laughs) when Armin Shimmerman (laughs) when Armin Shimmerman was like right there you know what I mean yeah no it is a shame he is 
It is yeah. it's he's clearly he does so much of the quirk character is done with the prosthetics and those damn teeth. So it was nice to hear him talk without those teeth clacking. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the fake of the prosthetic teeth it took me a, a second to like he sounds so different. Why does he sound? I'm like, oh, it's because he's not like whistling through the fake prosthetic teeth. <laughs> right. Is every one of us worn a compression shirt? I, I mean, we can't, we're not women, so I we can't have, make a bra a, reference. But it's like when you one. like if you ever take a compression shirt off, and it's like I, what I imagine what women feel like when their bra comes off, and it's just like ah, oh, uh-huh. and you feel so light, and you feel like you can you, yeah. you you get re-energized. And I felt like that that was Armin Shimmerman. <laughs> I mean, he's always been in a, you know a high energy actor, but like he he had so. Much much yeah, energy yeah, and yeah. he was so in character well, and even saying that he should get the Dane DeVito roles mm-hmm. is cutting him and selling him short I think that he could yeah. really he could have done a lot I mean he was juggling two yeah. shows at this time too and he was still in every episode <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like if you look on the set, uh, yeah, written yeah. on his desk and a letter on his desk is uh, no one would believe that Chir- it's uh, like a, a note that someone wrote on a piece of paper that said no one would believe that a cheerleader could kill a vampire. Like that's in joke. Oh, that's in this episode on his desk he, in the yeah, office. Yeah. Yeah, like a like a note, like an editorial note. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. story. Like he had wrote the story to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. awesome. He also the thing he throws uh, when yeah. he's uh, when he's getting ready to like quit. Uh-huh. The thing he throws it is a is an actual Hugo that someone oh, that was uh, like in the production cast had won for like artwork or something. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. so they had a Hugo floating around. Yeah, so basically, Cisco has so many fucking iPads on his desk, and then somebody hands him another one. It turns into a Galaxy magazine, and suddenly they're in 1950s or whatever. And you see the the wonderful, uh, also in the uh, energetic outside the makeup, that Frankie makeup, man, uh, Aaron Eisenberg, the scruffy newsy. It does take <laughs> right, its toll, right. Max Gardenshek is not in this episode, is he? He doesn't get a outside of the makeup turn. Yeah, Martok did, though. But... Yeah, that was pretty good, yeah. seeing old Martok. Yeah. He, he, I thought they shoehorned him in a, in a pretty good place. All the main cast does, like, for the, you know, but and then Martok's the only kind of guest star that really... Well, no, that's not true because Dukat and Wayun also get it. So we introduced to Isaac Asimov, played by Colmini. What's his real name? Albert. Albert is the character's name. And I think he's probably the most clearly one-to-one based off of a like a sci-fi character he's sci-fi, he's sci-fi writer yeah he because he is yeah. i mean from the weirdo stuff with the bongos to the like the the clumsy personality and the writing about selling his first book about robots all right so i got some i got some insight your boy uh isaac asimov uh fan over here he's got some stuff mm-hmm. for you so if you guys you guys ready i'm gonna read read some stuff lay it on me so this is from Caves of Steel, the robot series, book one. This is the introduction that Isaac Asimov wrote. He's basically telling about how his robot stories got made into a book from being serialized. In January 1950, Doubleday published my first book, the science fiction novel Pebble in the Sky, and I was hard at work on a second novel. It occurred to Fred Poole, who was my agent for a brief period of time, that perhaps a book could be made out of my robot stories. Doubleday was not interested in short story collections at the time, but a very small publishing house, Gnome Press, was. Mm. On June 8th, 1950, the collection was handed to Gnome Press, and the title I gave it was Mind and Iron. The publisher shook his head. Let's call it iRobot, he said. <laughs> we can't, I said. Yando Bender wrote a short story with that title 10 years ago. 
Who cares? Said the publisher. <laughs> Although that was his bowlerized version of what he really said. And I allowed myself rather <laughs> uneasily to be persuaded. I, Robot was my second book, and it came out just before the end of 1950. And then he goes on to talk about some other short stories that he did and the history of the stories being serialized in these magazines, such as Galaxy. Fast forward to this little part right here. The only trouble was that Gnome Press was just barely surviving, and it never did get around to giving me much clear semi-annual statements or much in the way of payments. <laughs> <laughs> that went for my three foundation books, which Gnome Press also published. So they actually eventually went under. I wasn't familiar with Gnome. Yes, so whenever Colmini at the end of the book, at the end of the episode, gets... His short robot stories uh, published. It's by Gnome Press Mm -hmm. in the episode. Yeah, Yeah, he says he's going to get a novel. Yeah. 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 Herbert Ross is the uh, Armin Shimmerman character. I don't don't think he has a true one to one. He, at one point, like on something on a P, I don't know, according to the notes on Memory Alpha, I didn't actually see it with my eyes. Thing, one of the stories that you see printed under his title is I don't have a mouth and I must shout so I don't know if he's supposed to be an Ellison like character but the time doesn't seem right for that so like the time uh, seems a little off. I could see them kind of putting him in because he's he's the boisterous shit talker when right and that's that's good. Yeah of... and he's the most famous one because he compares himself I mean because they all yeah. they treat him differently. Right he's he's like oh I'll go to Galaxy and Heinland Bradbury Sturgeon. I belong with Heinland yeah. And they pay him four cents a word which is more than anybody else gets paid because Benny Russell, he gets so excited when he's getting paid three yeah. cents a word. So, yeah. None a visitor is playing her name. What's her name? Kay Eaton or whatever. But I think it's that C.L. Moore is a science fiction writer from the 40s and 50s. That I was like, Casey Hunter is her character's yeah. name. I was thinking maybe she was a DC Fontana even. Yeah, I think that uh, C.L. Moore, I guess, was known. No one knew she was a woman. And then it was like found out when she married and her husband who she's married to what's his name in this the the character played by her actual husband henry cutner was the real real writer's name and he published stories under her name just to get more money like because they were married so she would like write stories and then he would publish them because he got more cents per word damn that's some cold shit well like she like it was like a financial decision for them still doesn't that doesn't feel good no no it's not cool it's i mean in that you know this episode gets into that but like that's some of the backstory with those and they were, and that he uh, insults Bashir. <laughs> Uh, by saying that he's a fan, nothing but a fantasy writer, and they were both kind of like Lovecraftian uh, fans. You know, that ties into some of the fantasy stuff as opposed to the sci-fi stuff. And then I guess with Benny Russell, like uh, uh, Avery Brooks said that he patterned a lot of the character on Samuel Delaney, but the time doesn't. I mean, Samuel Delaney wrote in the 60s, but also right, had right. to not have his pictures on his first books and stuff like that. So Right, right, right. We meet all these characters and they clearly have analogs and stuff. And then when uh, the Rene Ober Bergerian was the editor, Pabst. basically. Right. Pabst, yeah. Douglas Pabst, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. They announced that Roger Stone or whoever the Roger Stone the owner. Raconteur. <laughs> Mr. Stone that owns Mr. Stone owns the magazine, yeah. anyways. And he want they want to take a picture with everybody except Casey Hunter, the woman, and the black guy. You both can stay home because nobody wants to see that shit. Then he gets the whole spiel of like, what about black writers? What about these black writers? You know, that W. E. Dubois, Neil Hurston, you know, Richard Wright, haven't you read Native Son? And and his response actually is, I think, pretty keen to 
genre writers and even sick puppy. That's literature for liberals and intellectuals. We're doing different shit. Mm-hmm. Like we can do different, and that sets Armin Shimmerman. Already. Yeah, we don't we don't want no M.K. Jemisons uh, around. We mm-hmm. we just want stories about spaceships and monsters. White people on the moon, not black, yeah. not colored folks. That's an interesting. So you're sort of like that's a sort of a scrumptious atmosphere to set it in because it, it is it is an interesting thing, and it's not a world that's overly portrayed. You know, there's not a ton of movies mm-hmm. about sci-fi circles in the four in the 40s and in the 50s. So I like that there was these, you know, that it was set in this sort of pulp culture. You do go to like what, rightfully so, but what felt like more sort of like that Harlem living in the 50s. He exits the Arthur Trill oh, yes. building. Not, not the Brill building, the but the Trill. Yeah. And then that's when <laughs> Wayun and uh, Ducat show up. Or, or there, or... Jesus, fuck. They, they, they knocked those yes. little bit parts out of the... They were m- as, as many Menacing as all get out. Hey, boy. I'd watch that tone of voice if I were you. What are you doing around here? You were saying that about Armin Shimmerman, but like, like Marco Lamo could have got some character yes. work too, because mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. face looks just wrote oh, on. Yeah. Like, whatever we think Sam Shepard's face looks like, that's what Marco Lamo's face actually <laughs> looks like. Like, I, I was just thinking about like, where is my PBS production of Grapes of Wrath, where he's playing the Reverend? Like, where like he could yeah, fit yeah. into so many roles with that character, and uh, he looks so horrible. Yeah. And like, yeah. I mean, like in this, he's he's such a of the right. type. Yeah. They're Names that Ryan and Mulcahy, which I don't think they ever say their names, but I was watching with the captioning. Oh, like if- they gave his uh, Mulcahy his Wayun, and then uh, Ryan is Alamo. Except the one name that he says is Kevin Mulcahy. I guess is the character. Yeah. I had to pay very close attention to get that. Well, they only call Michael Dorn Willie in this. And so I was like, right, right. Surely, surely, two hundred and seventy pound Michael Dorn isn't playing one hundred and fifty pound Willie Mays. But no, I don't think so. His name is Willie Hawkins in this. Then he goes home, puts the the milk against his head to cool off, which is a I don't know, it's just a nice period moment to like, oh, they don't have air conditioning, you know. Avery Brooks did a great job directing this episode, mm-hmm. doing this part. I guess I, I said it's a little bit more familiar when you get into the Harlem scenes, but like if you've seen, like, I mean, some of those scenes of the apartment are very. Raisin in the sun. Yeah. It's, a, it's a pivotal part of American history, so multiple stories are told there. Right, so. right. And, and talk about deviating from the Star Trek norm, the music in this. It's got that jazz transition music and everything, which is Rick Berman was pretty famous for doing audio wallpaper mm-hmm. and insisting that the music couldn't be that dynamic, I guess, in Star Trek. But this one, they're like, fuck it, we're doing this story. We're going to change the music up. And so you get these like jazz saxophone kind of transition music. Yeah, there. as it turns out, like, like me watching it, it seemed like the whole staff really responded really well to the changes and let's mm-hmm. not do the same thing again and, and everybody sort of had a really good you time. do get this sense that everybody it does feel like everybody feel knows that they're doing important work yes. and having fun with yeah. it like you know all of the artwork and all of the sets seemed oh yeah, yeah, yeah. so i mean yeah it, it all seemed like a little plus to it you know just everybody and that's the thing like i mean People wanted to do different things with music throughout Star Trek and stuff, but Rick Berman had like edicts about mm. what you could do with the soundtrack. So this one got around that. <laughs> yeah. Roger Stone says that this music doesn't live up to mm. our normal standards. Yeah, we have all the stuff in Harlem where he's singing doo-wop with the kids. Wearing a kufi, which I thought was only a Muslim head, but I checked it out. It's just general sort of a Pan-African head 
thing. So it, it is also worn by African Christians. So and, and was pretty popular okay. in Harlem in the fifties. So first I was like, are they are they signifying that he's like a that he's a Muslim too? Because that, that was I mean that would have been oh, a, yeah, yeah. a little bit. Uh, a, I mean there were obviously there was the Nation of Islam, but I don't know how prevalent they were in uh-huh. nineteen. I don't know. Don't worry. It was my unnecessary bird walk to figure it out. Not not their not their fuck <laughs> sure, up. Sure, sure. Willie Hawkins is kind of sweet on uh, mm-hmm. Cassie that works at Ava's restaurant up in Harlem, and, and she's thinking about Miss Mrs. Jackson is going to sell the place to her maybe, so they have a future. Yeah, this was a heartbreaking conversation. Oh yeah, this is the... where we basically have her say we can have a real like stable life, mm-hmm. and he's like, I'm I'm a writer. I don't make food for a living. Mm-hmm. She's like, bitch, how much? money have you made <laughs> look i just got started i've only been at it a couple right. of years like it's been 15 years motherfucker that's a yeah. legitimate way that a system oppresses underclasses it's by making any sort of fanciful mm. dreams for their life has to always break to the mounting pressure of just living for another day or sort of chasing this concept yeah, yeah. of a stable life that really the system's never going to afford you because, you know, if she did buy it, it would just get rent controlled out or whatever, you know, so they'll just fuck you right, over right. down the road. You know, there there's a tons of, of these dreams dashed, probably like stop trying to do something that white people do, just fucking earn a living. And then the, the one person that's kind of made it, like uh, the Michael Dorn character, mm-hmm. Willie, they're like, man... How come you still live up here? It's like, man, this white people, I can't, I can't move downtown. Yeah. Like, they're not going to accept me. They barely expect me playing baseball. And also up here, I'm a celebrity too, which is pretty nice. Down there, I'm just another. This is probably yeah. the time I talk about the original script for this, which was pitched by every now and then writer Mark Scott Zachary. And in the original pitch, it was Jake Sisko is hijacked, you know, some alien of the week put like brain shit in him to make him go back to, to be a writer because Jake Sisko's a writer to, to experience life as a writer mm-hmm. in the 1940s. And the Michael Dorn character is played by, uh, is uh, essentially playing like a Jack Johnson parallel where he's like a boxer who's married to a white woman. Wow. Yeah. And then eventually the shop, the cops kill him for that. Okay. That's, I mean, that's interesting because the Jack Johnson story is an interesting story and needs to be, but I received bear rejected it. And for a lot of reasons, but one of which, like now that I think about it, I do think that that would have like by making it about interracial marriage, you take, I think the story is stronger because it's just about the systematic sort of problem yeah. of racism as opposed to like having a very direct attack. It could just be about interracial relationships right, are cool. Right, right. But no, it's about like this system totally ground these people down and rob them of everything. It's a much more comprehensive attack on the 20th century. I give I receive a lot of shit, but that was one of the things that like I felt like he rejected it and then came up with the idea of like make it about Ben's, make it about Avery Brooks. Because that's the that's a vehicle you want to build a you know you know yeah, let's yeah, let's yeah. call let's call the actor we want carry in the story and then changing that and <laughs> yeah. but then instead of Iris Stephen Bear just kind of like buying that story and then like rewriting it completely he actually went and asked Mark Zachary to write the story that he wanted and then he would give him oh, the yeah. original uh, the original story credit and then and then re- and then he still polished it with Bimler that was one of the places that could have went in a different place specifically with the Michael Dorn character and like, I like and the Jake character but uh, that I think is better for well him. speaking of Jake yeah, yeah I was like let's talk about Jake I want to talk about how Jake I think that Ciroc is actually showing some range in oh this yeah, yeah like he's doing oh, a, he's doing a see, really I, good job on this episode I re- see I don't oh, know I think. I, he's 
just the one off. I think his. I think he's better than Colmini in this. Oh yes, I like hands down. I really. Yes, I think. Yeah, he's, I think he's aces in this. I think he's fantastic really? in this. I think this is some of his strong. Like this is what he shows to try to get job. Like I'm sure. I don't know. I that's an interesting take because I he was the weakest link of this episode for me. Not for me. I actually thought he was one of the MVPs of this episode. <laughs> his jive talking accent is so over the top. Hey, you want to help me? You can buy this watch. I can use the cash. And it was about his character. It's about his expression and his like. His character, his character is good, and the story is obviously very important to the story. But from an acting performance, no, no, no. I'm talking about the vibe that he puts out whenever he's when he he was very believable and all. Like his level <sighs> of believability was was. Way have you up. ever have you ever read one of the any of the Easy Rollins stories by Walter Mosley? No, I know what you're talking about. There's though, a character yeah. called Mouse Alexander. He's uh, in Devil in a Blue Dress. He's played by Don Cheadle. Like it's very much that character. The writing mm-hmm. was. I'm, I, it was a performance issue for me. Like uh, I'm not trying um, to. Dis- actually, did- I was. I wanted to make a point about how well I thought he did. Like how good of a job he did in this, and how he showed more range than I thought he had as a character. It's a matter of taste. It's a matter of taste because, like, I he definitely showed range, but I did not find his acting. I did not find it a good performance for me. I felt oh, like wow. it was him put. It felt like a guy putting on a. I'm doing a jive talking. But that's what he's. And, but that's what that character would do. I know that's what the character is, but it did not seem. It did not feel authentic to me. I thought that he was. I thought it's the best he'd been in the show. We haven't. We've always kind of talked around this, but it seems like Sirach Lofton doesn't. Maybe doesn't have the easiest home life and has doesn't come from the sort of the best place like i don't i don't know i don't know but like it seems like the way he was adopted by avery brooks and stuff like that I, i'm making an assumption here i'm not i'm making a, if i'm wrong i'm wrong i'm not i'm not def, i'm not to the mattresses yes. i'm all about sir rock's mom and dad both call in next week <laughs> and i will eat all kinds of shit but it seems and so i think that maybe Sirac related to a character with a little bit more grit to him and a little bit more of uh of i mean of a hustle and i thought that it was nice to see him have that and not and not because like, he, he tries to bring that to jake cisco it's just always like about like to get a second helping a chocolate milk or something i don't know it's never about anything right, that actually right. has grit or hustle to it so and he brought enthusiasm to the role i just just the accent was not it, I just felt oversold to me. But again, that's a matter of opinion. And, and I like that. I mean, and he gets to be the the character, that, the answer to Benny Russell. Why does Benny Russell have to do this? He's the character that, you know, ha- exists with no future, that exists with the script is good, so they don't say this in so many words. But it's like, you know, if I can give you, if I be- a vision of the be- a better vision of the future, you won't have to be constantly hustling and having this essentially this low view of what you can accomplish. And his response is, no, no, he... <laughs> you know, and 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 where that goes, and I, I don't know. I, I yeah, I just he, he says he he says that word. Yeah, he's <laughs> he gets to drop, and I was like, wow, they slipped. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that they got away with that, it's it's a power to the show. That this, this, yeah. this is a great episode. That was but, definitely a moment yeah. where you, I feel like the writers say like, uh, if I receive him very like, I, I assume that he he didn't start off saying I'm going to say the n word. I think he said that like I'm yeah, going yeah. to we're going to write 
to earn it. Right, right, right. And I right. think they do. This is the only time it's ever been said in Star Trek, yes. right? I mean, Seven of Nine or Spock no. never <laughs> blurted out at any, at any no, point. No, <laughs> no. Th- I mean, Spock was pretty misogynist, but I don't know if <laughs> like, he was like... Uh... No, it's also the only time, uh, at some point, uh, Aubergenois says Christ, which is the only time that Christ has ever said in Star Trek, too. Oh, wow. oh yeah, he says, like, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I wrote it down where... I don't feel like the censors were looking at that. I think they were definitely looking at when the, when the young actors said yeah, like word. Benny Russell's written this story because he's gotten the art from J.G. Hertzler, Martok, of this space station. He's written this story about a black captain, Mr. Paps or whatever. Like, yeah, it's like a colored captain, for Christ's sake, it's not believable, yeah. is what he says, I think. Mm-hmm. And that sets off Armin Shimmerman's character. And he's like, and then we get, oh, 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 Herb hasn't been this angry since Joe Stalin, Joseph Stalin died. And that sets yeah. him off. You calling me a pinko? The red you know, baiting of that era. And, I mean, they, they touched on all of the, I mean, they touched on, you got, yeah. you know, you have a woman writer. I mean, they don't t- comment on, they seem to say that it's okay that Bashir shows up for the photograph, but I guess he's a an acceptable person of color. Oh, he sells white enough. Yeah, but I don't know, in yeah. the 50s, I don't know, but that, that he was, you know, but. When I was a kid, I didn't realize that he was a person of color on the show, honestly. His uncle's uh, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, and, you know. I, but they seem to be playing with all of that where, you know, you have, I mean, obviously the, obviously Arma Shimmer's character is a communist and. Oh, is he? Or is no, he's def- like, yeah, no, 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 that's the, that's the, the refutation of someone who has something to hide. His, uh, his refutation reputation on that so uh, i almost saw it as like he was like jewish guy and there's a certain amount of anti-semitism and communism yeah he was jewish too so yeah uh armin shimmerman says also he, yeah. he played him as a you know he's like i don't know he's like in my mind he was a communist so because armin shimmerman's right, pretty right. Yeah. fucking lefty too so yeah, and he's like, we're writers, not Vikings, you fucking fascist, is basically what he says. Yes, he calls him a fascist, and yeah, it's, which is play, you know, which is uh, also a, a little in-joke from that mountain climbing episode. Oda's been called fascist a few times. And not just on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. His advice for the Benny Russell is like, well, you can burn that story, or you can keep it in a drawer for 50 years. When we develop a colorblind society. And that's the thing, is that they think that if we just erase color then yes these problems would go like they don't that is still the boomer white people plan yes. why do we have to bring this stuff up it's like me and wade at some point i white people felt that they calmly conceded the point right. <laughs> and they don't know why we have to keep arguing about this <laughs> 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 but it's because you didn't concede loud <laughs> enough and there's still there's still like you know like there's still something to be paid for that i definitely think that that's what pap's saying you know it's not me it's everybody else and eventually you know and right. then later you know 50 years from now pap the the same guy that pap's guy is saying in a newsroom now why do we have to talk about this it just makes people agitated and irritated i mean it could lead to race riots he could say the same thing oh yeah he does <laughs> yes. say that so, yeah, yeah that was a pretty damning depiction of people's mm-hmm. ideas of a solution which is just to have no solution yes at all. yeah yeah and then he sells it later it's like well it's Look, man, it's not even me. It's the owners. It's like Mr. Stone can do whatever he wants. He owns this thing. Like, and you know, he because he tells him, "I'm not going to sell your story." And he's like, "Tell you what, I'll give you a novella. Give me three weeks, and maybe I'll give you the cover." Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, and then he comes back six, three weeks later. He's like, "I've written six more stories." So the guy's like, "What the fuck?" Like, and you get before that, you get the scene with Penny Johnson where she's um, where she says to him, why, "Why do you keep writing?" <laughs> like, and and that's I mean, that's what it is when yeah. you live 
close to the bone, you have to make these sort of decisions where she's like, representation of African-Americans doesn't fucking matter. Like, make money, like, thrive, you know, because that's all that we can hope for. Then it comes back again after writing these six new stories, and then Albert Asimov is like, well, why not just make it a dream? That was a great part, because Julian was like, I think that's a great idea. Or, like, I don't think it undermines the story. And Like, they find a way to make Julian wrong in that scene. (laughs) Yes, I think it's poignant. Well, was he wrong? Yes. Yeah, making it a dream undermines the story, Wade. You, You realize that, right? Well... That's what uh, he said. But then also... But Julian thought it would be fine if they made it a dream, is my because point. Because it would be... Because he's fine... Because culturally, he, you're fine with your shoeshine boy wanting to be something other than a shoeshine boy. But the idea of your shoeshine boy becoming something different is a totally different story. I, I agree. But also, Benny Russell, who was pretty adamant that he's not going to diminish his story, he was like, well, would that actually work? Because it... And then they do sell... Like, Armin Shimmer was like, it gets the... Mm-hmm. story that yeah. guts the whole thing but he's like well you know what and then uh the dc fontana or, or whatever her name is kc hunter she's like well no i mean you if you have a person that's in a low state that this is showing with them dreaming it could work i don't think it totally guts the story i think it does i think there's something to be said and i think benny russell realizes there's something about being dreaming for this i think he liked the idea of getting i mean i think that what you're supposed to i mean it's supposed to take you on the journey is that he makes the compromise because he wants to get the story out because he because this fucking brock peters won't leave him the fuck alone on the street about getting this fucking story out i mean it's not as good as doing it but it's a compromise that works no it doesn't that's the whole point of the show it absolutely doesn't work he makes a compromise and no one moves with him i'm saying if it got published it would have been a compromise that were, was good but enough it didn't for get it. published but, is the point of the story well i know that but i'm just saying that he's okay but i mean it's a, it goes back to the he was worth making the compromise to get the story published but then he saw that ultimately it wasn't no compromise would have been enough if it had gotten published it would have been worth it that's well, my point but the problem is it's Mike Harmon trap no half measures they, they won't sit they won't even there was no amount of compromise that would have made it better or that would have made it palatable to white art, audiences or to the publisher so but artistically it was palatable for him if that had been I enough. mean we every, every artist makes compromises yeah and that's what I'm saying and it's it's a it's a compromise you can live with he could live with it except the system could not live with it. That's the problem. But, but I mean, my point is, it doesn't completely gut the art of a story. I do. I think so. I yeah. I, that's why. That's why I thought. Well, Benny I Russell's think... willing to do it even, but it's what get completely guts okay, it. Okay, but you're talking about Benny Russell. Okay, so the arc is that Benny Russell makes the compromise to get the story across because his drive to tell the story is so over that he makes the compromise. But the compromise doesn't give him any play right. with the system. So. What was the fucking point? But the compromise is not what kills it. I get the, I get your point, but I'm just talking from an artistic point. Well, I guess I was talking about artistic merit. Not- and then artistically, I don't think it makes the point either. So I think in both ways it doesn't. I think that it guts the story. I don't agree that it completely guts the story, and neither did Benny I Russell. Think, That's my I point. think that anytime you you have a character wake up and realize the story is, was all a dream, that guts the, that inherently but guts they, the story. They say in this, you know, and even they're like, well, it does. It would have to be a person 
person. And, you know, they, there's lines and people disagree about whether it totally guts the story. Some of the right. people that are the, the artists in the show. believe it doesn't guts the story. <laughs> no, but they're not. Well, is... the, I'm just saying there's a disagreement <laughs> among the artists. I think he didn't make an art. He might have thought it gutted the story, but it got it published. No, but he's not. He's unwilling to gut the story to get it published because he's unwilling to change the guy to the right. Maybe he's willing to gut it a little bit if it got play with the system. That's what he, that's what I'm that's my fucking point. He is willing to compromise a little bit, but the system isn't willing to compromise. But he doesn't think it completely guts the story to make that cup. It's a compromise that he okay, can live with. Okay, so we're, we're skipping a part of this. We're starting a key part of this, is that he's been put on a mission by Brock Peters playing a, a Catholic priest who keeps coming to him and telling him that he has to tell the story. So at some point, the, I mean, he works at fucking what illustrated fantasy monthly. Yeah. They're all making compromises. They write stories based on images that like, that that Martok drew after getting horny. (laughs) So, I mean, like they're not like, it's not, I mean, it's not, it's not like Cahier de Cinema. So they're making compromises anyway. So of course he's willing to make these compromises, but he has this, he's been put on this near religious mission to listen to the prophets and to write this story. And so that seems to be a compromise that gets it published, that that fulfills the 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 driven prophecy of it. Right. Not the artistic merit, but the drive to get it told. But in a system it's, that's slanted against him, any compromise still doesn't make the you don't meet in the middle. You've just weakened by the compromise. And it's like you're you're selling it as his sin is the compromise. Yes. I disagree that that's not the reason he doesn't get it published isn't the compromise. But it's when the it's compromise didn't work is when he has the, the breakdown. He believed enough in the system. Right. He allowed himself to believe in the system for once. That if he just played ball with them, that it would everything would be all right. Yeah, and the tragedy of it is that that didn't work. I do think that having a story about underclasses serving in in higher positions of like gallivanting amongst the stars is better than having a shoeshine boy dream about gallivanting amongst the stars. It might make it more poignant to white people, and I think that's why Kalmini was saying, you know, I don't, I don't think it's my, the better. My my point is that there's disagreement in the artist on the show that whether it gets the story or not, and there's disagreement on us the three of us, whether it completely guts the story. I don't think it does completely guts uh, the story. Why do you not think it guts the story? Because of what the uh, explanation that Casey Hunter gives on the show, that like, well, if you have it showing, as long as you make it sh- from this person that uh, just downtrodden on, it's still saying something about that yearning for something better in the future. But, the, but I mean, do you think yearning is a, as strong of a story as having? I mean, I mean, the representation uh, it's a is... Di- is the power. I think it's, I'm not sure. I, I don't know how to answer it. I don't, I'm, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's stories. Like it's still, it doesn't, like I said, it might be a compromise, but I don't think it completely guts it. I don't think it's a, my point is I, that solution that the Asimov character gives that is good enough for, they think it's good enough is that there's the artist in the room agree that it still has some poignancy and that it doesn't compromise the complete art of the story. Then there's people like the Ralph Ellison, maybe analog that is more, like maybe you mm-hmm. that it's more Harlan uh, mm-hmm. Ralph Olson. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that is more like no. It completely guts it. That like I think that the people who wrote this script think that anytime you have a story, it's like a meta commentary on what they're doing here. 
Or if you have a character wake up and realize it's all a dream, then you're getting the story. Mm-hmm. And then what they're looking for is is like a, a way around, like a workaround. Because <laughs> that. that's the way the story's going to end. <laughs> right, right. Like I thought it was a worker. I, I think that that's... I don't know that the writers think that the dream's got it's a story because that's the whole premise of this episode. Is it a dream? Yeah, but I think like, okay, like, so, like if they, I mean, at the end of the last episode uh, and they talked about this, they actually talked about it in the room. Uh, this is on all this is all in memory alpha. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. You're, I know. Where you're going. For the last episode for they actually talked about do wouldn't it for the last shot if it cut to like, you know, like like the, the the camera pulls back and it's a movie set and Benny Russell is holding a script to a TV show. And and then they yeah. said no because yeah, that cuts the story. Iris Stephen Bear really wanted that to be the case, but the Berman and the producer no, said No, I, I read that Iris Stephen Bear didn't like it either. No I, no, I thought the whole thing was that Iris Stephen Bear wanted the finale to be Benny Russell's dream. In the documentary, he makes a reference to, oh, it's all Benny Russell. Oh, but does he? for a different character. How yeah, well, he just he calls another character. Oh, he's the Benny Russell. Yeah, but it guts. I just okay, okay. Wait, uh, no, that's why they had to for, they had to force Avery Brooks to direct this episode. Uh, let me see here. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Don't just mumble over that. Why did they have to force Avery Brooks to direct this episode? Well, you don't. Nobody likes to be the lead actor in an episode they're directing, and they didn't. It's too much work, and it's failed on other shows. So whenever you. See see like Avery Brooks directs an episode it's not an Avery Brooks heavy episode or Aubert Noir or any of these act you know like uh, all of those like the Frakes none right. of them were Frakes you know, there's not many Frakes heavy episodes but they, you know none of their white directors wanted to touch this one that's what it was <laughs> yeah. it was like we're three white guys that wrote this we cannot have a white guy direct it yeah yeah and so Avery, I mean, so, I mean, and Avery Brooks was, I mean, I don't, I, I think he may have felt a little overwhelmed, but I think he wanted to do it. So it's not like he was oh, he, an asshole about he it. He took this episode yeah. very seriously. Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I get the feeling he would have took this episode very seriously if Aubergine directed it too. So. Sure, sure. But yeah. He comes back, like the, the big argument that we were just having about whether it gets the story. He's, it doesn't matter. He's happy. He sold it. He goes out for a night on the town. Uh, then we have the, you know, the end of the Jake storyline. Uh, he's clearly like the, he meets Jake earlier to tell him to, to, to give him his exuberance. And clearly Jake's, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a classic trope in these crime stories where, you know, a young kid who's getting over his head clearly is in over his head in yeah, a scene. Yeah, yeah. And then later on, yeah, they pay it as, but right before that you have this scene with Brock Peters again, where he finally has the final meeting with Brock Peters in the dream oh, yeah, yeah. where um, I, I felt like I learned something like they added a little bit to the Bajoran religion mm-hmm. where clearly at that point he lifts the veil that he's speaking for the voice of the prophets and Brock, Brock Peters is essentially the prophets in this dream. And he reaches to touch, you know, Benny's paw oh, right, <laughs> to right. squeeze his ear and he gets like uh, like blood, blood on it, yeah. and I and I realize is that what they like? It's a it's like fake blood. It's premonition blood. You know, it's like it's like Macbeth blood. It's not real blood. But yeah, because um, then he goes into his ear and he can't find it. Yeah, it makes me wonder: is that why they like? Is that a tradition that like they're like reading tea leaves or something? Or if you have like if they find something, it's a symbol of blood on oh, their ears that's or something, why they reach and for that means that you're. Entering a road to pain or uh, whatever. Okay, right. Uh, yeah, with their, with great joy, there's great sorrow, like on the same path or whatever. And in their words, hope and despair walk 
Amin Ah. I, I mean, we can finish this up. I have like, questions. Yeah, so Ducat and um, Jeffrey Combs have shot Mouse Alexander Sorok and um, he said he had a weapon and he was legend at him, but he was he was stealing a car and he had a crowbar, which I guess was a weapon, but that's, you know, what you would use to steal a car. Mm-hmm. And Penny Russell interjects and they beat the shit out of him. Yeah. Like we've seen like once a week for the last right. three years. Right. You know, in yeah. some video or something. Yeah. So, so don't tell me this episode's not relevant. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Three weeks <laughs> later. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. Three weeks later, he limps in because he's going to finally get a story published. And, it, and it's not getting published. Roger Stone's uh, a horrible publisher and a racist and the world's not, yeah, whatever. The system will not allow this mm-hmm. to, be ha- to happen, basically. And not only is the story not published, they've pulped. Mm-hmm. They, they've burnt the entire run, and also Benny Russell is fired. Yeah, and then we have, um, I mean, you know, uh, like the cast talks about how they're really pissed that Brooks didn't get a nomination, an Emmy nomination for this scene, and I, I, I feel it. Like, I'm with I them mean, on that, actually. Yeah, like this is the best moments of Deep Space Nine, like period. Right. I, you yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, not, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the whole time tired of being oh, calm. I'm tired of being calm. Mm-hmm. Calm never got me a damn thing. I'm warning you, Benny, if, if you don't stop this, I'm going to call the police. You go ahead, call them! Call anybody you want. They can't do anything to me. All right. If I were the cast, too, I bet they... Re- to be in the room when they were shooting that, like, I'm sure that, like, mm-hmm. watching it, it's pretty fucking powerful. I was... For when I my first rewatch this week, I was like I was uh, tearing up pretty badly. I was it, it it was harsh and it hit me real hard that first time. I did it because I knew it was all a dream. <laughs> <laughs> that was... Apparently, like I mean, Avery Brooks went deep into the role. Like when he has a breakdown and he falls down, he was they couldn't they they talk about it in the documentary, but uh, mm-hmm. he was he was so in the character like he was inconsolable for like five minutes after they after they called cut on the scene even they couldn't bring him out of it like he was still like in the character so deep that they they didn't know what to do like all their re- responses are like because David Brooks is just so in that role like he had a breakdown like on set basically at that like that shit like mm-hmm. and they it took him a long time just to get him to come back out of the character to move forward after that scene and it's like. So. Yeah, you can't you can't half-ass a scene like yeah, that. Yeah, you have yeah. to, especially when a TV camera when it's up so close and the scene lasts so long. You know, it has to be a full commitment. So mm-hmm. it was a uh, it was a full shits, man. It was a uh, it was everything. And I mean, what you're you know, and you're supposed to feel in that room. I I think you know. I I I don't know how. I mean, I I think you know everybody looks at the race relations stuff in their own jaundiced way. But you know, I think it's clearly intended as the camera pulls away that you're supposed to see the indictment on every one of these people you know that none of none of these intellectuals that knew better the friends the good guys you know armin Sher- the good whites the armin sherman and 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 the and Colmini, like they they couldn't help him you know they were just a part of the system too Colmini only helped him compromise i mean well only helped him compromise the story and then yeah see i, I- See, I have a disagreement with you on that. And the, uh, the original script had a line about how the Armin Shimmerman character wrote, uh, published the stories under his own name, which is shitty too. And they uh-huh. cut it because it's shitty. Uh-huh. Um, where only white people can tell black people, you know. And 
And so yeah, that's not a former heroism. Yeah, you know, no, like, no. And, and I and I think that even maybe that was supposed to be an indictment too. But that none of these people and their ideas helped them. Like they weren't they, even. I mean, they're allies. Don't get me wrong. But like they're sh- you know the allies are shitty in this battle. The, the, I mean, how how just uh, omnipresent the system is in that moment. You know, Benny Russell didn't have anyone that could make him feel like a person, feel like a full. You know, a full human being like anyone else. Uh, it's it's a lot for yeah yeah. You know, and it's a, it's a lot for a syndicated ninety show, and, and, yeah. and it it was it was pretty amazing. It's a weird way to end the episode. I mean, it's not exactly the end of the episode because it's a weird way to end the nineteen fifties portion of the show because he doesn't really he goes through that shit and he's in the ambulance and then he's and then Brock Peters is at the preacher the prophet liaison I guess is in the mm-hmm. in the back of the ambulance with him and he's like uh, you know you stayed the course you're going back now and then he looks out the back of the ambulance and there's it's the stars going by real fast then he wakes back up and then we're back on deep space nine and then we're back to the deep space nine plot which is kind of kind of pales in comparison yeah i don't it's still there like yeah, i don't really get i don't really get the framing i get the, the, i mean i i i totally get the framing I device really i don't think it's as powerful as the story they're telling inside the framing device device i right. think the benny russell story is the really the power of the show but but for the character arc of Benjamin Sisko which is slightly different than Benny Russell's I do see the art because it sets up like I like I said at the beginning I bought his kind of grief over his friend's death even though it's just kind of Johnny come lately plot element thrown at the beginning and then at the end like this whole this whole experience is something the prophets put him through because he's thinking about quitting and then he goes through this experience and he's like you know what i gotta follow through to this thing that i've started i've got to stay the course you know and then his father who quotes the bible i fought the good fight i have finished the course i have kept the faith kept the faith he quotes Paul from the book of Timothy. Right. And Ben Sisko is like, Dad, I've never heard you quote the Bible. That's crazy. And then Joe, his dad, dad is like, well, you know, I'm full of surprises. I don't know if they knew the surprises they have later for it. But anyway, it's a way for him. It's a framing device for he goes through this journey and then he's not going to quit. That's that's the arc of the episode in the DS9 context, which... I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm fine, I'm fine not getting it, but I don't get it. Because I don't really get what, what the, like, what were the, like, were the prophets, I mean, you, I mean, I, I get it a little bit, because obviously I've seen the show, and I think it's introducing like the Ben Sisko as a definitive, he's he's on a, he's on a trajectory, he's been, he's been destined, he's a character right, being right, right. written by higher forces, I guess you can say, in the show. So I think that that might be what the the prophets were trying to show him, is that you're, you know, you're a character being written by by, by, by fourth dimensional beings, and your ear is still in that room again and again and again. But, like, it does seem like, it it, it seems like, it seems like the, the, the prophets were trying to tell them is, hey, if you lived in the 1940s, You'd really like where you are right now. No, see, that's you know, that's not what I got it. I got it as as the prophets like put him through this journey. He's experienced the Benny Russell and maybe that glimpse into what the real reality is or whatever. But he sees the struggle and realizes that he can't give up the way that Benny, you mm-hmm. know, he can't give up the struggle, and that's why he doesn't at the end. Like he realizes, you know, what it was like back then and what Benny Russell's gone through, and knowing that. He's if he is the story that Benny Russell has written, then there's no way he can quit. He can't give he can't because that set that dream aside. The night 
African Americans in the 20th century needed inspiration? Not because it get not just so I can be a story for these people, but no, because it's a story that rings true. You can't because whether whether he's just a story or not, you have to follow through. But on this stuff, that's important. I'll, I'll concede I'm nitpicking like the most unimportant thing on the best episode of the show. So, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I, I, but I, I, and I do think that they pick up the, pick up the pace with the, with the profit stuff. Right. I mean, and if, if nothing Benjamin else, Benjamin Sisko being manipulated by the prophets well, the, yeah, his ma- whole life. The, so. the, the, the prophets show him that the struggle is real. That's the short version. And the struggle is real. You can't give up. And that's the lesson he learns from this. And that's the arc of Benjamin Sisko in this. Then he has like the meta moment, like, wait a minute. What if we're not real at all? What if we're just stories yeah. like we're in a TV show? And then Brock Peter's like, well, that's a scary thought. <laughs> it's like... He's <laughs> like, well, you are, you, you know, you realize that you are just stories. It's like, yeah. You know, to some degree, he is being manipulated by higher forces. So sure. I, I do think that some of that. And when you, when, when we have a semi sequel to this, it's a part of that storyline. It's how you, you come to that semi sequel. Yeah. So I think that that, you know, that he is a character in a pre written story to some extent. I don't know how spoilery that is, but I was gonna say it gets kind of meta in that way, but also in the way that you're talking about. No, it. I don't mean I don't mean in the Benny Johnson stuff. I mean in the Prophet stuff. Sure, sure, sure. Or Benny Russell. I keep saying Benny Johnson. He's a shitty fucking like alt right journalist. I don't know why I keep <laughs> I saying that. Because Pen, Benny uh, Johnson. I mean, that's the whole point of the episode. Is the, the struggle is real. It, don't give up. That seems vaguer than I like what a story to be about. But yeah, well, I mean, it's, I, I, it's I, not vague. I, I mean, come on, I'm selling it. No, I don't. I literally don't know what those words mean. For what that what that relates to. I mean, Benjamin Sisko's in war and he's losing casualties. I mean, that's not uniquely. You don't have to go back to the 1940s African American experience. Like, there's a reason that they do. I mean, it's that story's worth telling. Don't get me wrong. And I, obviously, I'd love the fucking story. I'm just saying that, like, I don't like it was a weak sauce reason to get there. And, Disagree. and the resolution to tie it back into the ship, I, I don't know. Like, if the episode just ended with the, the ambulance driving away, I would be fine with that. I don't know. I think it, I think it works fucking great. <laughs> like, but, again, yeah. the Benny Russell stuff is the strongest point, that more than the Ben Sisko stuff. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of people believe, and I don't think, I'm not sure, it doesn't look like this is attributed to anybody, but they believe that some of this was heavily influenced by... Um, Hugh, you probably know this story about a, I believe it's EC comic story called Judgment Day, which was written by Alf Feldstein and drawn by Joe Orlando, who we will talk about uh, Joe Orlando on other ventures probably coming soon. It's a story about, uh, it's a space story told in the 50s, probably 53 or 54 maybe. It's a comic book published by EC Comics about like aliens that are judging people based on race. Is that right? I've never read I, the story, but I've only I heard about it. I don't have that particular story, but I do know that that Feldstein and William Gaines, uh, Bill Gaines, yeah. stole pretty liberally from every Galaxy magazine. <laughs> I'm sure, uh, yeah. And at one point, you know, they had cease and desists every month. You know, and Ray Bradbury contacted him like personally about like, hey, where are my royalties at? Because this is clearly one of my stories. (laughs) Uh, on a regular basis. So yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, this was right after the code was put in. And so it was about like a space captain who was trying to navigate and these aliens were judging him by race. And basically at the end of it, the big reveal is that the astronaut comes out and pulls off his helmet and he's an African-American space captain. And the comics code rejected it. Oh, wow. And they fought it. 
and they, like they were like because he's and they that's didn't want right. to say it's because he's African American, but it's because he drew him with a lot of sweat. On, that's like, right. He was sweating. Yep. I know that. And, then and they, their excuse was that it was playing into into racial stereotypes, and they were like, "So remove the sweat." Yes. And they were like, "No, make him white." <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's when they they chose to run the story without the code, and the the comics authority just destroyed. I mean, that's the beginning of the end of EC Comics. That's exactly how that happened because I that's in a book called yeah. that's in two books that I've read that, that mm-hmm. story about the about removing the about removing the sweat and they actually did remove the, mm-hmm. like the first they it wasn't it wasn't like at one conversation it was yeah, it, yeah, it was a back. It was and a forth, back and yeah. forth where they actually did like went through all the work of re- like removing the sweat, and they said, "Ah, yes, I see that. Yes, you have removed the sweat, uh, but the problem is that he's still black." <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, yes. But, yeah, they kept on. They kept on shifting. You know, which what they wanted and what they really wanted was just racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's and that's basically when you. I mean, EC Comics was dominating comics in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, and writing sci-fi and horror, uh, and that basically killed them. I mean, it was part of the thing that killed them. And then you have the rise of superheroes after that. So I don't think that Bear or anybody's commented on it, but a lot of people believe that that was one of the sort of impetuses for this story. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. That that would make sense. Yeah. You guys want to give me your real rewatch meter real quick? I'm going to guess that we're all probably in agreement on this one for once. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm actually I I feel bad for so vehemently arguing in this episode that we all agree is fucking great. That's I feel like I brought that on myself because I was a dissenting opinion. <laughs> it's fun, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> Shit, this is a ten for me. Yeah, this, this is a ten, right? Can you imagine how good a like if this just start? I was the start of the of a See, deep space. I, I don't know. I don't know. I I feel like if they kept on this note they would have cheapened it i think it's better as one-off because if this were the whole season i don't trust them to carry it out maybe if it were a... that's that's true they could no, they could easily yeah. they could easily fucked it up they got yeah. it they got out having us want more which is yeah. how often do they get a chance to do that right yeah exactly i mean in that way i guess i'm an i'm an artistic optimist where i always feel like james last week you like, spent a whole week talking about how <laughs> really? they don't have a writer's room equipped for like light humor and i know and, and, i know you know what they have a, they have a, but they proved with this that they have a writer's room equipped for this shit so mm-hmm. i guess that's the point is i've always been saying is why right. why get distracted with shenanigans right. well, when you can do this? One, there's no way in hell they could pull off 26 episodes. I don't think they could have pulled off a 10-episode season of this. Thing. I mean, I don't know how closely hewed. I mean, it could be, but I'm just, just, what if it was like these... Like a three-parter, like you would have... No, I don't, I'm not even talking about it directly. Like, what if this, I mean, if this was the start and then it moved into telling other, like, what if it wasn't about okay so star trek started as a western so it's cowboys and indians in space and this was specifically deep space nine started as like as you know that same thing but the the cowboys don't move right the cowboys have houses and Fort so and, and, yeah, and, and, space. yeah yeah and so and so i feel like okay you're still kind of in the same genre what is killing me is that you're you're doing better things, but you're still like adhering to this draw, this this genre. But what if it like really started telling these other kinds of sci-fi stories that we when we talk about the original series, we talk about them doing City on the Edge of Forever or whatever. These that are varied in different kinds of sci-fi with different kinds of ideas. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that if, that everything was set in the 1940s. I'm just saying that what if 
you started telling these kinds of it's about what sci-fi means to people because i mean that's the big thing of it is why this episode's got to tell this story why why star trek has to tell the story is because what good is a utopia if you don't have an honest accounting of where you came from mm-hmm. so this was the struggle and now and now this is the payoff and that that's for you that that's that reminds you that the aspirational element of all of this and it's not just for black people, but if a trans person watches this episode, they could imagine, you know, Star Trek's not ready yet, but one day they could have a trans captain and that this story could be told about set in a boys don't cry kind of situation. And that could, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it oppression and overcoming oppression through science fiction, you know, it's a universe. I mean, everybody can can put themselves in that. And so, like, I don't know, explore, like, I don't know, it just, it was such, it was such a creative and interesting and exciting thing that you could keep doing it, you know? I mean, yeah, you keep, you keep doing it, you keep going. Right. I mean, I'm I'm with you. They do a tiny, they do a tiny ship episode next week. Yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, I'm with you that it would have been fucking amazing if they'd done all this amazing stuff. More Asimov references. But for me, it's not an indictment of the show that they don't do that stuff. It's just like, it's stuff that they're doing stuff that nobody else was doing to an extent. And I enjoy the stuff they were doing, even when it doesn't hit the heights that this episode does. The fact that they're not hitting this kind of episode every week isn't an indictment of the show for me. Did it. I'm the tiger mom of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Why not? Why? Why a minus? Yeah. Why did you get an A minus on this episode? <laughs> right, I right. Fair. <laughs> what do you guys think the people of IMDb rate this? Oh. See how how much is the alt right on the internet bringing it down? Do they like it more than us, or no. do they like it less than us? Well, the question is, does it hit nine? I mean, does it hit nine? Yes. All right. Uh, I'm gonna go nine point two. Oh fuck! I want to do this. I want to do. I, I, I'll go nine point four. This has got. 1,597 votes, and it's an 8.8. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Some folks are fine with all the captains being white. You got to keep that in mind. (laughs) I don't understand. I I would have liked this episode, but I felt like it was just, you know, it was digging up old stuff that doesn't need to be talked about. Right. I don't need an episode to tell me that people were racist in the 50s. Yes. I I don't need the real world. I watch sci-fi to escape. Listen, we had a black president. Racism's over everybody. Why do we need to dwell on it? (laughs) Oh, my God. Do you remember then that was almost commonly believed. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, after this weekend, can you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Jesus. That's such a yeah. fucking, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Ugh. Well, the sh- a ship gets really small next week. <laughs> oh my and, God. I, and I go on a fantastic, and I get an excuse to play Fantastic Voyage by Coolio. So, on the end of an episode. Well, also, <laughs> the fight scene at the end matches up with uh, I Need a Hero. So, you should. <laughs> <laughs> You should. I you should. will have to check that out. You'll have to check that out. All right. <laughs> oh, shit. Wait, right. well, should you tell everybody how to give us money on a regular basis? If you disagree with us that uh, this is a great episode, if you're a horrible racist, <laughs> give us a call. Sorry, you disagree and I call you racist. Whatever happened to the tolerant left? <laughs> I don't think that's a legitimate call to action. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways... Or you have your own insights about this episode, whatever they are, give us a call at 917-408-3898. But also, more importantly, I guess, if you want to find other stuff, if you want to give us money and get other audio content, uh, go to patreon.com slash kickersofelves and join the Patreon where we have bonus content about 
us and also for uh, we're going through Watchmen for the Hashish and Superiority Book Club, which is another podcast you can check out. I don't think we've officially announced that yet. I don't know if we have or not, but cats out of the bag. Talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing the Watchmen for, for Patreon oh, listeners. Oh, no, that we haven't <laughs> announced. You're right. Sorry. Did you want to talk more about doing Watchmen? Or? We're, we're, we wanted to do something to tie in to Hashish and Superiority Book Club through our Patreon. So that's what we will, uh, we're going to be doing a run through uh, the Watch uh, the Watchmen series, which is Al Moore's most popular oh. work or famous work. And we are also, uh, me and me and Hugh had a chance to hook up without Wade, which we sadly missed. But we recorded a commentary track to the studio cut of Zack Snyder's 2009 epic, The Watchmen. So <laughs> that'll be a, also a thing that's coming out. For Wade, James, and myself, thanks for listening to another episode of The Rules of Acquisition. We uh, hope you join us next week as we get tiny. Uh, <laughs> for three to beam out. Don't let them shoot us, oh Lord. Don't let them stab us, oh Lord. Don't let them try and better us.